So, three bedrooms, two baths, nice big backyard. But no trampoline room, correct? Correct. Like all houses in the world, there's no trampoline room. Mm. Ben is coming back from D.C. in 10 days, and we are moving into a house together. I'm just so happy that Ben and I are starting our life together, and my future is finally back on track. Martha, I want to lease this house. Great. Thought it was going to be more dramatic than that. Hold on. Okay, say it again. Martha, I want to lease this house. On this episode, KBX and I will be talking about the fifth episode of season five called Halloween Surprise. And the IMDb summary is that Leslie's future with Ben is on hold after he gets a new job offer. Leslie and Anne give Jerry a heart attack. I'm surprised that's not the leading fact of this. And Ron's new relationship is in jeopardy because of his girlfriend's kids. So this is an iconic episode, very similar to the Niagara Falls one with Pam and Jim. Uh, of the office and so I'm excited to talk about mm. it yeah I agree as soon as I saw the house that she walked into I was like oh this is the one you know you you just know and I love that they picked like a really unique setting because I did have that visceral like this is it it's gonna happen I know I was wondering though because I love the house I mean it's a lot of wood but I love it but I was wondering if that's what like Hollywood's idea of what a mid-level government employee can afford in Indiana, or if they actually wanted something that, you know what I mean? Like, I was just wondering if that was something where they walked in and were like, oh, this house. Whereas I was like, oh my God, this house. Yeah, but I feel like since they said they were going to lease it, and they probably have two incomes coming in at this point, that, you know, that seemed more reasonable to me than some other television ideas of what's affordable for people. Yeah, yeah, no, I liked it. Also, I loved this episode because in the last episode that we talked about, a criticism or a point that we had was that everyone was kind of subdued, like 10%, all their personalities. And I feel like in this episode, everyone's personalities were on full display, like dialed up to 100. Um, and so it was fun to see something that was so ensemble filled and so had so many moving parts about all of their lives. So we got to just see them all on full display. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I know the one that really stands out for me and that it seems really small in the episode, but honestly, I've been waiting for so long for it is the Retta or the Donna part. Tonight's film is the 1986 horror camp classic, Death Canoe 4, Murder at Blood Lake. Seriously? <laughs> That's the best one. I hope no one minds if I live tweet this bitch. Because, you know, it doesn't have any real payoff. Like, she's just live tweeting. But that really comes from Retta's real life. So back, like, when she was on the show, but in previous seasons, she would live tweet shows that she was watching. And it became, like, a huge thing. And people would follow. I think BuzzFeed called her, like, the only thing you need to be following on Twitter. So, and granted, BuzzFeed can be a little hyperbolic, but they're not wrong on this one. So they took that aspect from Retta and put it into the show. And so I loved getting to see not only something that I thought was really fitting for Donna, but also knowing that that came from something so great and unique about Retta. Yeah, I hadn't realized that. I kind of looked it up because it felt um, different than all the other episodes, all the other plot lines. Like everyone else's plot was kind of focused on the future and hers was just 
a comedy one. So I was looking up why they had made that choice. So I loved that it was based on Retta's real life Twitter feed. And I thought that it did show her personality a lot. And fun fact, the man who complains about her. You should have put spoiler alert on all those Death Canoe tweets. Also not safe for work. You know, a lot of what you wrote was really profane. The movie's 25 years old, Morris. And if you don't like how I tweet, don't follow me. What are you doing now? I'm talking to you. I'm live tweeting this dumbass conversation. Is because I was obviously looking this up, so it came up in trivia. Joe Mandy, Joe Mandy, Mandy, who was a writer on Parks and Rec and is now a producer on The Good Place. So we talk about how Pawnee is, you know, such a small town and the same people pop up. And I feel like it's the same with all of these Parks and Rec and The Good Place <laughs> kind of sitcoms. We see so many overlaps. It's so true. I love seeing all the overlaps in Michael Schnurr's like guest characters that come in. It's always great when you watch his shows and see who pops in and out in all these different roles. I think the one character that we saw a bit of her personality, but it it didn't quite land right for me, and maybe this is just because it's her personality, was April. I'm talking specifically about the beginning part when she comes back to Pawnee. And I suppose maybe that was just a way to get her back in Pawnee really, really quickly, whereas Ben is still in D.C. contemplating his future. But when he was giving the speech and she, you know, kept having to interrupt and like it was kind of a tired joke that was not even funny to begin with. So to do the joke over and over again wasn't really funny to me. Like that part about her leaving so quickly I did not enjoy at all, even though April often plays like a bitter, disinterested character. It still just seemed too mean to me, especially because I think we've seen her and Ben like take steps together and he has helped her kind of grow a little bit. So to see her just be so like callous and insensitive, I felt like it was turned up a little too much. Oh, that's too funny. I actually really liked that part and thought that it was super fitting with her personality. I mean, I know we've seen her grow, but... We see, I think, her growth later in the episode, so to see the balance of her bitter side again in the beginning part of the episode felt very, you know, she's growing, but there's a balance. She's still April. And I actually, that's like one of my favorite scenes in the episode, when she runs out of the room and knocks the glass off the desk, and then Catherine Hahn's commentary on her leaving and like, who is that? I don't know. I really like that part. I think that's funny that you thought it was too, that we disagree on that. I was curious what you thought about the Ben and April plotline. They're no longer, I think, going to be a joint plotline. But the whole episode is about people's futures one way or the other, um, I think, except for Retta and April. But for me, I thought it was very uncharacteristic of Ben to not have thought about his future. Like, he was really surprised when Catherine Hahn brought up the idea of, what are you doing next? And his whole thing was like, oh, I'm going to have a sandwich or something like that. I don't know, maybe just from watching, not that I have personal experience with this, but from watching like the West Wing and Veep, it seems like campaign managers and people working on campaigns are always looking to the next thing. Like they're working on the campaign now to get to someplace, you know, in the future for their careers also to help the person win. But so for me, it felt super uncharacteristic for such an ambitious person like Ben to not have considered what he's doing after this campaign has ended. What did you think about that? Oh, well, I guess. I thought that he had always believed his future was to go back to Pawnee and figure it out from there. Like, I I suppose you're right that it is weird that he didn't have a next step planned out when he came back to Pawnee, but he went right from doing Leslie's campaign 
immediately whisked off to Washington to do this campaign. And it sounded like it ended uncharacteristically early, or at least like he was moving back in 10 days, I think she said. So maybe they just kind of like wrapped it up a week or so early. I also know that when people do like campaigns and stuff, it's nice to take like a week or two to just like decompress and, you know, get out of the 24-7 working cycle. So I guess I assumed that, you know, she was going to lease the house, he was going to come back to Pawnee in 10 days, and then they were going to like take a little bit of downtime before he figured out Mm, what was next. That makes sense. Did you think that he needed the emotional validation from Catherine Hahn's character to consider that next step? I thought that her saying that you're really good at this and you should do this was for him. It like gave him the confidence to go with her and make that pitch that he made to the Florida governor wannabe. Oh, completely. Because I think the other thing is, I think he really saw this campaign as like a fluke. You know, he did Leslie's and he got invited on this. And it's almost like, yeah, let me do this cool one-time opportunity. Like, when am I going to get a chance to do this again? Rather than like, this is my career. I can definitely make a good living out of this and like do this professionally. So I think that's another reason why he maybe didn't have the next thing lined up because he saw it as an exception to the rule or just like this cool one-time opportunity rather than, oh, you know, you could keep doing this if you wanted to. And I do think that Jen Barkley affirming him in that way, like definitely made it harder and did give him that confidence for that meeting that he wouldn't have had before. Mm, Okay. His plotline made sense and I thought it was good, but it seemed like very abrupt that he was just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing after this. This sounds fun. So that helps. It's so true that this episode was so future heavy. I mean, they use the word future like I didn't exactly count, but it was like easily a half dozen or more times in a 30 minute episode. They're like, get it? You can't plan your future. But I've (laughs) come back to think about my future, which was an incredibly sweet proposal. I'm not taking away from that. I'm just saying the writers like definitely laid it on thick that it was like, this is an episode where people think about their future. Oh my God. So thick. In a nice way. Again, not criticizing the episode, but you're right. They were, I think Leslie even had a line that was like, I mean, you had this whole plan for your retirement and your beach house and now... Oh, your future is just a huge pile of crap. And then even Ron's plotline was like so future heavy, especially when the fact that it's like kids, you know, they're they're the symbol of the future type of thing. And so for him to accept the kids in Diane's life is him being like, yes, I see a future with this woman. Future. It was laid on pretty heavy, but I liked it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it worked. And I think Parks and Rec always does a pretty good job of balancing like emotion and humor. So this was yeah another one of those examples. It might have been a little heavy on the like emotional side this episode, but they still certainly found a balance. And I also think this episode, and it makes sense that they go hand in hand, was about like emotional vulnerability and opening up to someone. I mean, because I think obviously proposing to someone is like an incredibly emotionally vulnerable experience and moment. But also then you have Ron dealing with doing something wrong and rather than accepting it, he just like closes himself off and is like, well, I don't think I want that anyway. And just like refuses to acknowledge that he did something wrong and maybe he does want the thing that is admittedly a little weird for him. You know, that opening scene when he's like, what the hell just happened? So this was one of those episodes where you see Ron like 
struggling with that classic masculinity of like don't express feelings don't show emotions and finally get to a point where he's like you know what it's worth it for me to actually apologize and acknowledge my feelings and that I want this to keep going well rather than just stay this like stoic mountain man (laughs) yeah absolutely and I like that he I don't know if he took the advice from April to go apologize but you know she's kind of the voice on his shoulder that I think he was already that he already heard in his head, but he was like validated in his feelings about, you know, maybe don't let this one go away. Maybe you have to choose this moment to be vulnerable. Um, And it it was very refreshing to see him take this step with a woman who isn't one named Tammy, but also toxic in the way that we've seen his previous relationships be. Yeah. I mean, there was even the symbolism of the fact that he's like, well, if the girls came to my house, I would have to take out all the trip wires and the, you know, alarms and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you would physically have to break down barriers that keep you separate from other human beings in order to let these people into your life. So, like, in every way of his life, he's kind of guarded and, you know, on alert. And so watching and we've seen him let that down, that guard down before. But this is like. I think one of the clearer times, and especially with someone who, as you said, it's not someone who's toxic for him. It's not another Tammy. So it's one of those, I think one of my friends was saying this recently, where like at every point someone realizes that you can be with someone who is nice to you. And that's a real game changer. Mm. And I think maybe this is Ron having that moment where like, I can be with someone who is just nice. Oh, yes. I love that because he does have this such a, what is he? He even has like the tower of manhood or the pyramid of greatness. That's very, you know, masculine. So I love that thinking about him accepting the fact that he can be with someone who's nice to him and it's okay to want that and accept that. Oh, that's really sweet. I also love side note, the symbolism of the booby traps and all that. Not that I made that connection, so thank you for pointing that out. Ron is both physically and emotionally protected by a whole lot of tripwires and booby traps. <laughs> I wish they had shown what it looked like. I kind of picture it like a Macaulay Culkin Home Alone <laughs> type situation. I was picturing like Unabomber, so yours is a lot nicer. <laughs> oh, God. We even see, oddly enough... Andy starting to plan his future and make it more, like, work towards it. We've heard his plan of wanting to be a police officer before this episode, and he tried to work out, I think, a couple episodes ago, and it went very poorly, and then the sh- the focus of the episode kind of shifted to Chris Traegar, so we didn't really see the end of that. But I like that it's been a continuing storyline where he's actively working on getting to his goal. Like, we saw Leslie work on getting to her goal the whole last season, and now she's here, and now we see her kind of try to balance that. And then... Andy, I mean, he's not super effective at it, but he's working towards it, which I feel like is something, I don't know, new for him, maybe. Andy in this episode is yet again, for me, like a great example of a mediocre white man who doesn't realize how completely mediocre he is. He's like, oh, it's time to do some observations. Tree, sky, night, Andy's hand. What else you got? You know, it's just like, oh, I have to learn this skill. (laughs) nailed this skill (laughs) rather than like you're not very good at that and maybe you should put some effort into it so lovable on the show but certainly like coasting by and thinking he hit a triple I know I butchered that 
turn a phrase and I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. And I agree. The only reason I think that, you know, it's Andy. And so he's, he's very lovable because he's so good with the kids and he has such enthusiasm. Like for him, I think it's bearable for me because he doesn't realize any of it. And well, I know that's part of the mediocre white man thing is that they don't realize it, but it's like, I don't know if he's like capable of realizing it yet. Yeah. For me, I think it was a little bit more along the lines of a laughing plot line and it didn't annoy me as much. Oh, for sure. I thought it was very funny and enjoyable. I just also was like, and it didn't, it didn't upset me in any way. I don't think it was intended as like commentary or anything. And that's why I was just like, Oh, Andy, you think you're so good at this. And you were like average. Honestly, you're like below average at best. Oh God, below average. Absolutely. And he didn't even apologize to that couple. He just asked for candy. Trick or treat! 7.34 p.m. Man dressed as a nerd. Female dressed as crazy witch. Neither of us is in costume. Case closed. Candy, please. Oh, I know you mentioned Chris. So speaking of Chris, though, I found him not at all needed in this episode. Uh, We got basically an update that things are continuing, you know, on track with his therapist in that he is way, way, way relying on his therapist at the moment. And then he said, I'm going as my greatest fear. And they didn't even like make a real joke out of that. You know, my guess was that his greatest fear is aging based on his costume. But it was like, you could have taken him out of that episode and absolutely nothing meaningful would have changed. Which is especially fitting because I feel like that's totally wrapped into his fears is that he is just not contributing anything and he's growing older and he has nothing to speak for his accomplishments. So (laughs) I like that the form of his uh, part in the episode also matches with what his fears are in the episode. Yikes, you are right. That is harsh. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I just assumed they had a certain number of episodes he was required to appear in and they were like... Uh, well, we got to get him in this one. So anyone's got three lines we can give him? Yeah? Oh, he's going to be Retta's person that Retta explains the movie to? Great. Exactly. And that he's, we're just going to learn, as you said, how dependent he is on Dr. Richard Nygaard. I am coming dressed as my greatest fear because Dr. Richard Nygaard feels that I should face my fears instead of running from them. He's very wise. I see him five times a week. He holds my life in his hand like a fragile little bird. Right. Another example of vulnerability. He is in a very vulnerable place right now. Yeah, like the exact opposite. Is it, there was a lot of healthy vulnerability in this episode. I think his is probably at an unhealthy level. Although I, I guess I was impressed that he had even shown up for work. I mean, that's a step. That's I know true. that can He's be very difficult for people in a hard state of mind. Yeah. So props to him. That's true. And I did like one thing. I know it was kind of made off as a joke, but the thing where he's like, Parks Department! Chris Traeger, city manager, friend, aspiring life coach, and recipient of Dr. Richard Nygaard's award for most improved patient for my psychotherapy sessions. Wow, that's great, Chris. Congrats. Thanks, Jerry. It's just a piece of paper, and he only made it for me after I specifically asked for it while crying loudly, but it sure meant a lot to receive it. I think that's actually a good example. Maybe his therapy is going well because... He's, like, articulating his needs and not only, like, figuring out for himself what would help him, but then asking for it from others. So, you know, I know it's silly, but he himself says that the certificate is very meaningful to him. And he was the one that asked for it from his therapist. 
and possibly the crying might have had something to do with it. But I like it. It's something good we can all model. I really like that interpretation because I find that moment so cringy and just heartbreakingly like, ah. So I like your interpretation that it's actually a moment of strength versus a moment of weakness. Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that we can all be better at modeling. It's figuring out what we actually need and then asking people to help us get that. All right. So then Dr. Richard Nygaard, I was being a little bit harsh on him for feeding into, you know, Chris's neediness, I think. But actually, he provided exactly what he needed. And speaking of people who need medical care from a doctor, poor, poor Jerry. I think one of the saddest scenes I have ever seen, ever seen in this entire show is when he is having his heart attack and, you know, Tom comes out of the bathroom and he's making his little remarks and Jerry apologizes to his coworkers mid heart attack. I was like, you know, I love a good Jerry joke. I think he has a lot going on in his life that he can kind of take the jokes. But oh my gosh, his self-esteem is degraded to such a degree that he's apologizing to his coworkers mid heart attack. It it no pun intended, but it broke my heart. Oh my god. I know. And especially so he has a heart attack and Tom cannot read the room. Shows some emotion after he learns that he's having a heart attack. But then also the moment that I found so sad was at the end when he, when Jerry is in the hospital and Leslie is sitting right next to him and he's thanking her for raising money and he invites her to sit with him for a while because his shows are going to come on and it's strawberry jello night. I mean, the man's in the hospital. There's not a whole lot that you can do there. And Leslie to his face just says like, oh my God, your life is so sad and walks out. They're terrible to him. This is not new commentary, but like those two moments specifically in this episode, it was like, oh, got it. Like, I think it went a little too far because that's just mean. Well, and the other thing was the whole lesson he just imparted to you. Like, I get it. Like, this is the climax of the episode where she realizes what's important and her future, yada, yada. So he imparts this lesson to her. And a huge part of the lesson that he says is, as long as I have the people I love with me, I'll be all right. And then that very next thing he asks for, you know, speaking of asking for what would help you, is he's like, hey, do you want to stick around and watch some TV with me? And, hey, I'm really excited for this small thing in life. Like, I'm finding joy even in a difficult situation by the fact that it's Strawberry Jello night and her reaction to this man who just said, all I really need to be all right, despite my hardship, is people I love in my life. And she's like, oh, no, no, this is pathetic. Are you kidding me? So glad you got what you needed, Leslie. Now you can leave. Bye. <laughs> I know. I know. And I know it's a running joke in that, but those were tough to watch. Yeah. Like, speaking of growth in characters, there is no growth among any of the characters as regarding Jerry. There's none. It's been five seasons, guys. That's he had true. a heart attack. I think there is some in the future, but we haven't seen it yet. And it's very frustrating that among everyone else who has had, like, interesting changes and growth that this is the one area where everyone's like perfectly fine kind of remaining terrible and speaking of growth I think we see that moment with Anne and her boxes and she finally realizes oh Leslie was right and here is the physical proof and I'm going to KonMari this stuff out of my life (laughs) I absolutely wish that Parks and Rec was still on so that they could show like Leslie KonMariing her 
hoarder household. Or you mean her scary nightmare hoarder nest. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Did you notice who was not there, though? Who was not one of the boxes? Uh, a dusty old chestnut we haven't dragged out <gasps> for a while. Mark Brandanowitz! Yes! He had no that. box. He was so boring that her life didn't change at all while she was dating Wait, him. Wait, I'm sorry. Did she date him? Anne did, yeah. Uh, it honestly, I, like, it blanked out from my mind. It's like it never happened. <laughs> yeah, because remember she was, well, I guess I don't know how long they were dating, but they were going out on dates. Because remember she broke up with him in yes, and JJ's diner. Her for closure. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's legitimately like it didn't happen to me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is like that in the show as well. He is so forgettable. <laughs> I'm really, really, really sorry to the actor that plays Mark Brandanowitz. I'm so sorry, but your character is quite forgettable. I'm sure he's used to it by now. Well, maybe that would have been a funnier joke to then just have a hell like an empty box for him. <laughs> I mean, it would have been a very meta joke, but... Uh... Nope. Did not <laughs> even notice it wasn't there, but amazing observation. Anne's character growth. I like it. I do. We still see her uh, love life. Like, she, you know, she's working on herself right now. And then it comes up in the auction where she is being, you know, on the spur of the moment auctioned off as a date. And people start bidding on her. So her like her love life is still very front and center, even though she doesn't have a love life right now. Um, but I did appreciate seeing, I don't know, it adds a little bit of something to her because she usually plays a straight person. So it's like good to see her have these quirks and foibles as present in like these very physical boxes that she's auctioning off. So true. And I think, you know, the moment with the auction, she does ultimately like cut it off and I like the symbolism of, like, I'm bidding a million dollars on myself, so go away. And I do know that it's about her life life, but the funny thing is we've talked so much in many, like, couplings about how in Pawnee you probably just kind of have to, like, take what you can get to a degree. You know, it's probably a small kind of dating sphere. And yet, now that I'm thinking about it, Anne has all these, like, mystery boyfriends that we never see on camera, you know, the cowboy and the different kind of phases she goes through that makes Leslie point out this pattern. But then also, like, she's at this local auction that is hosted by the local parks department, and there's suddenly, like, two incredibly attractive age-appropriate men that just, like, appear and are willing to spend $700 to go out with her. You know, I'm like, how does Anne find all the available men in this town? Right? Every episode where Anne's love life is front and center as a plot line, there's a wide amount of attractive age appropriate men like the um the tent with Re where she was in the tent with retta i forget what she was oh during harvest festival and there's just this random guy who walks in who she makes out with when she goes to a dating night and there's just you know just like clip after clip of her talking with men yeah and then this auction that people had time in their day and heard about and went to and you're like who are you also how about you go in front of the stage afterwards and get their numbers? Because if you don't, Donna Seriously. is certainly going to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, like, when Gilmore Girls did the dating auction trope. Is it a trope or is it just in a few weird shows? Anyway, when that plot happened in Gilmore <laughs> Girls and there were mysteriously okay-looking guys in the bidding audience, there was an explanation for it it's because it was set up on purpose like it's just not believable that these two gorgeous and like one of them happens to be one of the few people of color in this town like these two incredibly attractive men are just like oh hey didn't have anything to do on a Thursday night so I just thought I'd stop by the local parks and rec auction 
Right? And KMAX and I speak from experience. We have tindered in a small city, which I believe is probably a little bit, supposed to be a little bit bigger than Pawnee. And it would literally say, there's no more men near like, you. You've run out. There, you don't get any more pictures. <laughs> that happened to me. So, like, I, I, we speak from experience in saying that this seems bananas. Not How does this happen? Not even once has an, an attractive man tried to bid $500 for a date with me. Not the once. Television lied to me. <laughs> Maybe in television world, Leslie's statistic that three and four couples meet in an auction is true. So we have Gilmore Girls, we have Parks and Rec. I'm sure it's happened in many yeah, other I'm TV shows. I'm excited to look at that trope online. The other thing, getting back a little bit to the Jerry plotline, is it's really sad to me. Like, it took me maybe till my second watch, maybe not quite that long, but to realize, like, oh, it's absolutely terrible that you can have a heart attack and you can have health insurance and you'll you'll still be saddled with thousands upon thousands of dollars of bills. Like, I think I'm so used to crappy American health care and its inequities that I'm just, I didn't even find, like, the injustice in that till, like, maybe the second go around when I was like, holy crap, that sucks. He's going to have to pay all these bills simply because he had a medical concern. Right. This storyline is like anything you see posted on social media where it's like, this kid raised a bunch of money to pay for his service dog. And everyone's saying like, oh, what an inspiration. And, you know, then there's the reaction of saying, well, we shouldn't live in a society where a child has to have a lemonade stand to raise money for his service dog. So the story of them having the auction is lovely. And, you know, they did cause it in some way. But it's one of those where you would see posted on like a GoFundMe or something like that. And it would be uplifting, let's say, you know, look at all these people rallying around this sick man. And the reality is, is that he has insurance. He has a full-time job and he should not have thousands of dollars after a heart attack to that he has to pay on top of what his insurance has paid. Totally. And there have been, I wish I could remember, I think it was maybe like a BuzzFeed long form from maybe a year or two ago about GoFundMes, especially as they relate to medical situations. And a huge premise of the article was like, people with the most sympathetic stories and or the widest networks can actually, you know, off sometimes I should say do all right on something like GoFundMe. But then you're basically having a healthcare system where people who are either very attractive looking or have a huge network or can somehow push their story out through some media gets their health needs covered. Whereas people that like maybe aren't photogenic or maybe like have some sort of health issue that keeps them inside and not building as strong of a network or for whatever many, many reasons you might not be able to be successful on GoFundMe. It's basically like a weird semi lottery that it's like, well, your healthcare will be taken care of because you can come up with a sympathetic sob story, whereas your story, not quite as compelling. So sorry, bucko. And in this case, Jerry's just lucky that Leslie is so like motivated and has that network, you know, could pull together a successful event, which also, by the way, isn't she a city councilwoman? It feels like we have completely forgotten that in this episode. But nonetheless, Jerry's totally benefiting from the fact that he has that network and he basically got lucky by knowing Leslie because if it weren't for that maybe he wouldn't have come up with $1,200 to help cover his medical bills 
Yeah, and I'm not at all about people's motivations when considering their actions, just in general. But that was also not at all about Jerry. So that was about Leslie freaking out about her own future. So he's lucky that he has such good friends who have the time and emotions to put into this. Um, but also, they weren't really thinking of him at all, unfortunately. I do think the moment kind of changed when Leslie got that phone call from Ben and she was in the middle of the auction and that's when she comes back and auctions off Anne. Like she says specifically, okay, come on, $60, 60. $65, anybody? Oh, hey, we're up to $60, not bad, right? Yes, Anne, bad. You might not care about Jerry's future, but I do, okay? We need to do something very drastic so he can be happy, so we can all be happy. It's very much in Leslie's nature to be like, oh no, something has happened. Let me react in the biggest way possible. And so I think that was the moment where it really tipped from like, let's do a nice thing and help Derry out to, oh, this is kind of me trying to deal with my emotions and anxiety about a completely separate problem, but I can only work out those emotions in this way right now. That's how it felt for me anyway. Oh, see, I had taken the whole thing to be, again, not at all, you know, great that they raised the money, but um, I, even in the beginning when Jerry was in the hospital the first time and he was saying, you know, I would love to not have the bills. I think that Leslie kept saying things like your future is canceled. You have no future, that kind of thing, which I took as her freaking out still about Ben and just putting her emotions about that onto Jerry. And granted, I'm, I'm reading into this, but that's how I had interpreted that. So, but yeah, definitely when she gets the call where Ben is much more likely to, you know, continue living outside of Pawnee is when she's like, no, we need to do everything right now in her, as you said, truly reactionary Leslie way. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's absolutely projecting. Oh yeah. And I think about Leslie as a city councilwoman, I really liked that they didn't address it in this because I, for me, okay. So I think that especially with the women that we've been talking to who have run for office, we see, or who are in high positions, like the balance that being ambitious takes on your personal life. And in a lot of workplace comedies, their personal life and their work life are one and the same. So you don't see that balance. It's just like, like on Halloween, they're all hanging out with their coworkers, which, you know, I think in, in most work situations, it would be like complaining about versus like, Oh, here's all my best friends. Mm-hmm. I can hang out with them on Halloween. So I did really like that there, you know, it wasn't a mention of, Leslie's city councilwoman position because it was more of a focus on, okay, she got there. What's next? How has this affected her personal life? The fact that both her and Ben are ambitious. What has that done to them? Because you can't really see it in other aspects of her personal life, if I think, just because, you know, she hangs out with her friends all the time at work. So I did appreciate that. You know, I, I want a quick pivot back to her as a city councilwoman, because those are obviously the plots I find the most compelling and interesting. But I did appreciate that they had a nod to how a couple with such ambition can be affected by their ambitions while they're still pursuing them. Yeah, that's a fair point, especially because with Ben gone, like maybe if he were in town, she would just kind of get through it with him and then rely on her friends as secondary support. But with him gone, like they really are her core network at the moment. And it makes sense. Yeah. That they would spend Halloween together and, that she would still kind of want to be looped in with them, especially because, like, we haven't seen her get any new staff as a councilwoman. You know, there's no, like, 
oh, my new assistant or this is my new legislative staffer. But then also the little bit that we have seen of her colleagues, I would not blame her for not wanting to spend social time with them. So I just felt I felt like maybe it was out of place, like they wanted to put it on earlier or something. You know, it just it felt like we didn't even get a mention that she was a councilwoman. But I do think you're right that it's probably realistic, given that she's only been in that position for a short while and she just hasn't had enough time to kind of experience any changes in her social network. So, of course, she'd be spending time with the same folks. And I did notice that, you know, this was a Halloween episode, but it felt like compared to past episodes, and this is way more realistic, I think, the costumes were all kind of like half-assed and they even sort of just barely mentioned it was Halloween, like Leslie's like, oh, and you're the, and Anne's like, oh, yeah, and you're the, and they're like, great. Hey. Hey. You're the, uh, the lady, and yeah, you're the USA. Oh, great. So hold on. What does this mean? You know, I mean, that was basically the only real mention that it was Halloween. Yes. I know. I really liked that, too. And Ron had his same pirate costume. Which, right. You know, I've absolutely used the same costume twice before, so I did like that, too. I liked that it was setting of it and so you know it fit in a little bit with them wanting to scare jerry but it wasn't a halloween episode all in capitals right like i think they felt the need to acknowledge it especially because i think it aired very very close to the actual holiday itself but they didn't make it the plot you know like they have in the past with greg pakaitis or ann's party you know it wasn't about that it was halloween they just had so many other things to do in this episode and I also know as somebody that has needed a last minute costume, our first year of grad school uh, needed a last minute costume, went as Rosie the Riveter because it is the easiest thing to pull together last minute and for basically no money, showed up at the party. And granted, this was a really big party. There were like four other Rosie the Riveters there. <laughs> and we all took a picture together because we were like, oh, did you also need a last minute costume? Hey. <laughs> but it's super cute. The red lipstick looked great on Leslie. Yeah, I think so, too. Oh, it's very easy and, like, and very comfortable, like, if you're going to dance or anything. But, yeah, it, it's a classic last-minute costume. I mean, if we're talking about most comfortable costumes, so I have to say, you going against Kimmy Schmidt. You had a backpack, a cardigan, oh. it was, like, comfortable pants. Sneakers. That looked super comfortable. Yeah. Like, um, oh, what are those kind of sneakers called? Boat shoes. All-star sneakers, like that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Like heads. Like, that was the kind of sneaker. Yeah. That was also a very comfortable costume. Well, okay. So just like with the end of the episode, let's save the best part for last. Okay. Oh, my gosh. You know, I saw it coming because I saw the distinctive looking house. But the amazing scene at the end with the most lovely proposal. What did you think? How much did you cry? I I really have to say, the first time I watched this episode, I was a little bit rolling my eyes. I knew it was coming. I'm uncomfortable with emotion. And I watched it, but wasn't allowing the moment to fully penetrate, like, my thinking and my emotions. And so it was kind of like, oh, this really cheesy moment. And the second time I watched it, it was so cute. It was so perfect. And I did a little bit tear up just because Leslie is so happy in this moment. And we haven't seen her be unequivocally happy for a long time. She's been super stressed. And even in this episode, we see her running around and being stressed and being disappointed about her future. Like she's worked so hard and she keeps thinking that her, the future that she wanted is not here. 
So to watch her and Ben and him be, again, so vulnerable by saying, like, how much he loves her and how much he cares for her. And, uh, I loved it. It took two watches, I think, because I've seen it so many times that it was just like, here's another scene in the episode. And then I really was trying to watch it like I was watching it for the first time, because I think that's a little bit more fair to this podcast and grading. And it, oh, it just caught me up in it. What did you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I also loved it so much, especially because she was in the place and trying to make peace with the fact that her future as she envisioned it was not going to happen. Like she was there to kind of cope with the disappointment of like what I thought was going to be my future just isn't going to happen right this moment. And to instead have that moment turn into not only, you know, is Ben coming back and they can, you know, I presume get the house together, but also like going to get married as well. You know, it just turned from having to come to terms with a reality that you don't really want to getting a reality that's even better than what you could have imagined. And it's so sweet and it's such a lovely written scene, you know, just the back and forth. I think it's so cute when she waits for the moment and then she still wants another moment and he's kind of like looking around and nodding his head just like, and anytime now, you know, it's so sweet. And I also did notice that this episode was written by Michael Schur. So I think he has that touch with the episodes that are like thoughtful and emotional, but still have a really strong humor to them. I've noticed that that sometimes those episodes that really strike that heartfelt note, they are often written by him himself. Oh, we'll have to check that or out. Or at least he's, you know, the head writer, the like top listed writer. Well, do you want to know, speaking of the team that creates this and how much we like and respect them for their decisions, do yeah. you want to know the cutest fact I learned about this scene? No, tell me. Okay, so I'm reading up on it, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, in the scene where Ben is proposing, he opens the box, and it's a little bit too big for the ring because it's the same box that he first presented her with with a Note 2012 button in it, and it's the same box that she turned back and him with a little Washington Monument figurine in it. Oh! Isn't that the cutest? That is so sweet. I was wondering why that box was so big. I was like, did he get her, like, an engagement watch or, like, an engagement <laughs> bracelet or something? Like, it was just a big box. Holy goodness gracious. I love that piece of trivia so much. Yeah, it's, it's the same box that he, you know, supported her dreams, and then she supported right. his dreams, and then now they're like they're together dreams i know well Aww. that box is like i want you to push for your future and then she gave it back to him being like i want you to push for your future and now it's like we're gonna have a future together ah! oh my goodness i'm so overcome with emotion that's beautiful right even this is 2012 and it's seven years later six seven years later and we're still like this scene is so emotional and i love it granted oh. we're huge fans obviously but oh my gosh no, that really gets me. Wow. That that's such lovely attention to detail. So touching. Right? As you were saying with Michael Schur and his very delicate writing of emotional scenes, I think that whoever it was decision that was the, the prop master, I don't know what roles are called in TV shows, but the person in charge of props, the director, whoever it was, that was an on point choice. And something I hadn't noticed in the six years of watching Parks and Rec, like I had to, you know, look it up in the trivia afterwards. So I really, really liked it. Well, we loved all the emotion in this episode. Did it make us laugh? I think that's also key to an episode. So did you have any laugh out loud moments? 
I did. I had a couple, I would say. But the strongest one for me was when they were holding the auction and the kind of creeper man is like looking like he's going to win and and Leslie's questioning him about what you know what what are you what are you going to do with her and after he's done explaining what he's going to do with her she's like oh that wasn't as bad as i was expecting <laughs> okay sir what would you do with your $900 date how would you uh um what what are you going to do to her i don't know my cousin's got a kick-ass mud pit in his yard. She could watch me do belly flops. Then maybe we'd get some Thai food and a tank of nitrous and see what happens. Oh, that's not as bad as I thought it would be. Because basically the expectation is obviously it's going to be the creepiest thing in the world. And it still was pretty bad. But yeah, I thought that was so funny. I laughed every single time. I did like the whole auction scene of her saying, you know, Send it, like nothing sexual. Well, maybe. Don't try it. But maybe. And then the, the yeah. absolutely where she kind of was like, what? What are you? What are you? What are you going to do to her <laughs> on the date? I liked that. I figured we would have probably pretty similar laugh out loud moments. So the other one that I had was when Jerry is having his heart attack and <laughs> and he's you know he has an excess of gas and Leslie I think I think Tom's out there in the same moment and there's just a lot of stuff happening. And Leslie goes, oh, my God, there's so much stuff happening. What? Are you serious? Oh, so much stuff is happening right now. Call 911. Because she just <laughs> I think with the physical comedy of the heart attack and the farts and Tom being his annoying self and, <laughs> and Leslie just being super blatant about, like, there's just so many things happening and she can't deal with it. I laughed out loud to that, to her reaction to it. Oh, totally. Yeah, she was just. It kind of was like the opening scene when it all the chaos happens, but then only after it ends and everyone leaves is Ron like, what the hell just happened? She's like kind of processing in the moment where she's like, ah, there's so much happening right now. Like, just kind of naming it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it sounds like we both liked it, but we can't assume anything. So what was your grade? Gosh, this was a really tough one because I do think both the proposal scene itself and just like the feelings that I have about that and the box now. I mean, I do give that a lot of weight and I liked seeing Ron kind of face up to the fact that maybe he likes this person enough to show some vulnerability. Um, We didn't even mention this, but with the idea of futures, we do see, we don't know it's critical yet, but we see Tom kind of come up with this creative idea for a business that you know is something creative and new and not quite as gimmicky as some of his other work so I think there's a lot going on here it didn't have quite the laughs for me it didn't that doesn't mean that it wasn't funny for me I do think it had that nice balance but it wasn't quite as like ha 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 filled and you know what laughter sounds like and I don't know. I mean, for me, I think it's like a B plus, And I hate to say that for an episode that has such a sweet moment. But the other plots just felt kind of so-so for me, perhaps with the exception of Ron and Diane. I don't know. I really hate to say it. It's just the way I feel. So I think a B plus. Feelings. I, I actually had my grade in the B range, too, until the second time I watched it. 
So, because I, I feel similarly. Like, I thought that I want to see, I always want to see more public service in the episode. I want to see policies and her making her way through city council. But I did appreciate this episode because I was viewing it through the lens of, like, work-life balance and about how what it spoke to with Leslie and Ben's relationship and how their career goals have affected their relationship. Not long-term, obviously, but, like, it has affected them. And it has had these changes on their life that they had, you know, Ben's state and Pawnee had Leslie not chosen city council. Like, maybe they wouldn't be facing these. So I did appreciate that it showed you a glimpse of that because I think it's unrealistic if it were just to be Ben's always super supportive for her and his job doesn't conflict with their lives and he's always around. Like, I think that that would be unrealistic. So I appreciated that. I loved, as heavy-handed as it was, the future scene because I think it's sets up, you know, we're in episode five now, so it sets up the rest of the season to see what the all the characters are going to be working on and doing and feeling. So I liked that. You know, we had a whole season of Leslie's campaign and now her win. And so it does feel appropriately it does feel appropriate to have this episode of like, okay, so what's next in West Wing tradition? Um, and you do need a full episode, I think, to set that up in a convincing way. So I liked that. But you're right. It wasn't as many laughs. And just some of, you know, I don't super find like the fart attack funny. You know, it's just something that it's not, doesn't speak to me so much on the humor side. So I was in the B range. And then when I watched the second time around and when the proposal scene to me again and I watched it like I was watching it with the you know fresh eyes um so I, I bumped it up to Aiden because any tv that can make me feel that emotional for two fake characters I just you know what you get the A so I think I'm going with A but I do appreciate and see and find valid your B plus yes and it seems like it seems like when it comes to grading and kind of your feelings about this episode that so much of it hinges on how much weight do you give the proposal as compared to the rest of the episode? Because Steve Heisler himself, when grading this episode, gave it an A. And so much of his loving the episode came from the proposal scene. I'm only going to read a really quick excerpt, but he says, The last scene in ha- Halloween Surprise is amazing. How amazing? Good enough to transcend the sad trombone of an extended fart joke. Dot, dot, dot. Good enough to gloss right over the brief forays into Anne and Chris territory that didn't add much. Dot, dot, dot. Good enough to have me wondering how in the hell NBC is going to fare once Parks and Rec calls it quits, either by choice or by mandate. So basically, it comes down to, like, how much does the proposal scene weigh in your mind and how much do you factor that into grading? And I know for both you and now Steve, it's an A. I really did love it. I think it just doesn't quite like balance out enough for me, but it's still such a good episode and it's a very, very good scene. So touching. I think it's funny that he had the same comment on the parts scene too. Yeah, I appreciate it. And that we did, I think that those grades align perfectly with how I feel about seven. Like I'm glad that we have a B plus in there to be a little bit more realistic about what this episode as a whole is. Yeah, but I also get it that like that is obviously the episode. You know, like when I watch it and she walks into that, when I rewatch it, I should say, and she walks into that room and I know, oh my gosh, this is the episode. I kind of don't care what happens in the rest of the episode. Like none of it (laughs) needed to be fantastic for me to still love this episode. You know, like it was fine to get by on pretty good for the rest of the plot because it was going to end in this absolutely phenomenal way. So I, I think I'm just like being really, really trying to be as objective as possible. I think overall, 
the episode, yeah, is like in the B range, but it's because it didn't have to be fantastic. That scene was like, it just, it was lovely. It was everything we wanted. And it was a surprise, as it says in the episode title. I did not see that coming. It wasn't a long build up to it. It was just like, ba-boom. You thought you were going to have to live apart from one another for yet another campaign? No. How about instead, we get married? Yeah. It was so good. So good. For this week's Wall of Inspirational Women segment, we are excited to talk about newly elected Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. She represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District, which is on the western side of Connecticut. One thing that Representative Hayes is very well known for was that she was chosen as National Teacher of the Year in 2016, and her position helped her gain some name recognition in Connecticut and in the country and a little bit of trust among the public. And she has credited it in several interviews with helping her to have that foothold when she chose to run for office. So if you've heard of Representative Hayes, it's probably because she was that teacher of the year, but she had never run for public office before. So what made her make that leap from being a teacher and then an administrator and deciding to run for public office, wanting to be in Congress? Well, as we'll talk about, there are several reasons, but one of the big factors in deciding to run was that she was pushed by current Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who also used to hold the position of representative for the 5th Congressional District. So I wanted to point that out because I think we talk a lot about women having to be asked multiple times to run. And particularly, we tend to focus on women supporting other women in running for office. And while that is fantastic and we absolutely should continue to do that, I think it's also important to point out that men can be allies to women in the same way that white folks can be allies to people of color and so on and so forth. So... It doesn't always have to be women looking for great women candidates to run. It can be men, you know, straight white men saying, hey, this is an amazing woman in the district I used to represent who could do incredible work in the U.S. Congress. And in fact, one of the reasons it's been said that Senator Murphy wanted to ask now Congresswoman Hayes to run was that he believes the party needs to start looking a little bit more like the people that it represents. And as we will discuss Johanna Hayes definitely brings a new perspective and a valuable life experience that not all members of Congress have and can take into account when they're doing policymaking. And like many of the women that we've spoken about in our Wall of Inspirational Women segments, Representative Hayes very much campaigned on her live experiences by showing how how valuable they can be in Congress, especially when many of the other elected officials don't have these experiences. So she would commonly speak about her growing up, you know, being raised by her grandmother, how she grew up um, living in poverty and in public housing, and the challenges that she faced because of that, as well as how that affected her schooling. And so when she became pregnant at 17 and was forced to move to an alternative school because it was, you know, frowned upon in her own school, um, she talked about how she almost dropped out and instead she went 
and finished high school and then later decided to go on and get higher education, getting an associate's and a bachelor's and a master's after that. But she very much credits her teachers with recognizing that someone in this environment, which she called abject poverty, she said her teachers really helped her believe that she was college material and planted a seed of hope in her. And that support helped her become who she was as National Teacher of the Year and helped her to move forward when faced with these challenges. And I think in a fitting cycle, she very much credits her students with helping her decide to run. So she taught for, I think, 15 years in the same district where she grew up. So she saw the students that she was teaching facing the same struggles that she had. And she kind of said she had this epiphany and said, if I don't run, who is going to speak for my students in our you know, higher halls of government? And so I thought that was very fitting that as a teacher, she looks back and sees the support and how that affected her. And she also looks forward and sees you know, the next generation coming up and says, well, how can I best support them? So I loved that story about her. And I thought that was very fitting for an educator. Absolutely. And one thing I definitely noticed was that so much of her education has been through public schools. And that includes she went on to be a teacher at a public school. She was an administrator at a public school. So when you're talking about a person going into this very specific kind of public service, it's really great that they have such a grounding basically in every form as a student, as a teacher, as an administrator within the public school system. And I think another really valuable asset she brings to the table as someone with such deep experience in the public schools is her belief in common sense gun control. And that has a lot to do with the fact that her district, the 5th Congressional District in Connecticut, includes Newtown and, of course, Sandy Hook Elementary. So it, of course, makes sense why common sense gun safety would be a huge part of her platform. But she also brings that personal experience to the issue by saying, like, look, I know what it's like to be a teacher. And with these proposals of arming teachers as a form of public safety, she says, I don't want to be responsible for what if I lose my key? What if a kid gets their hands on it? What if I can't use it in time? Like she brings a personal perspective that so many other people can't. And I think that's just one example of why having diversity among our elected officials, and that includes not just race or gender or sexual orientation, but it really includes diversity of life experience. Her experience as a teacher and how she then looks at the issue of gun safety is a really valuable one. And finally, we saw in this episode, Leslie kind of freaking out about her future and not knowing what was coming next. And one of my favorite things while researching Representative Hayes was she was on Ellen. So as National Teacher of the Year, she got to meet President Barack Obama. And then she later appeared on Ellen during that same year. And while she was on Ellen, it was fun to watch her interview with her because she was talking about how it was the coolest thing ever for her to go and meet President Obama and just her experience going to Washington. And she was like, well, first of all, I'm never getting invited back. It was so surreal. That was still. Yeah, I was still. For, well, I don't blame you. It's an exciting thing when you meet the president. First of all, I'm never getting invited back. Well, <laughs> you don't know that. You're right. No, you don't know that. You're right. See? <laughs> You're right. Don't. And I just thought it was so 
funny because we saw Leslie like not know what was coming for her in her future. And the same thing in 2016, while she was still National Teacher of the Year and talking about how going to Washington and meeting the president was so cool for her. And not knowing that in two years, a year and a half, that she would not even like wait to get invited back. For being super cheesy, guys, she wrote her own invitation. And I just thought that that was a very fun little glimpse of the future. So if you are looking for a reason to smile, watch her interview with Ellen from 2016. I love that. She wrote her own invitation into the U.S. House of Representatives. And I also think keeping very much in line with this episode, we love to end on a quote in the woman's own voice. And we saw in this episode, Leslie focus very much on one person and on trying to fix Jerry's situation. So we thought it was very fitting to include a quote from the representative that kind of was in line with this way of thinking. So she says, when we're having a conversation about jobs and the economy, I'm thinking about the child who comes into my classroom and says, we're changing schools because we have to move because we lost our house. It goes on to quote her, when we're talking about policies, I'm thinking about people. And I just thought that was a great quote to end on and especially fitting for this episode. So we're thrilled to add yet another newly elected member of Congress to our wall of inspirational women. And we hope that you enjoyed learning about Congresswoman Johanna Hayes as much as we enjoyed researching her. Definitely keep an eye out for her work in Congress and definitely keep an eye out on our social media. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WFW podcast. You can connect with us on Twitter WFW pod, or you can send us an email, wfwpodcast at gmail.com. What might you send in an email? Oh, anything, but especially if you'd like to send a little shout out to a Galentine in your life. We are planning for our upcoming Galentine's Day episode later in February. And if you would like a little shout out to one of your favorite Galentines or multiple Galentines, we'd love to include that in the episode. So you can make a short but sweet recording on your phone and email it to us at wfwpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to include it. If you're listening to this on your phone right now, and you're just kind of, you know, tooling around, if you want to head on over into the iTunes app and send us a review, give us some stars. We love to hear what we think about the podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode of Waffles Friends Work. I love that. She wrote her own invitation into the U.S. House of Congress. Oh, that's not a thing. (laughs) Into the U.S. House of Representatives. I like House of Congress. (laughs) Good thing I'm editing this. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha.